Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. This morning, I want us to look together at the Gospel of Matthew, right? Some of you think I've never preached anything but Matthew. Well, that's kind of true. It seems like forever. And yet, I'm not apologizing. It's the, we can go through, why does the Bible contain three accounts that are basically very similar and a fourth that's slightly different of the life of Christ? Because you can't get enough of Jesus. You just can't get enough of him. We need to read the Gospels four times for everything else. Yeah. And I, I really mean that. I really think that we need to look at Jesus. So um, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're looking at Matthew 23, 29 through 39. Matthew 23, 29 through 39. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers." You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Remain standing with me, all right, while we pray and lift your arms as we ask God to bless the reading and teaching of his word. Father, we come to you this morning needing you and needing your spirit. You've promised not to withhold your spirit, so give him to us as we look at your word together with this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There are certain things that enter your life at certain ages and become symbols of bigger things or stand for things, Aesop's fables from your life. The, the kind of thing that you look at and it becomes a template for understanding things. Some of them are from movies. 
one of the uh, one of the most I don't know if I'd say influential it's not influential but one of the most powerful symbols I have in my mind of the way that we act at times as human beings comes from a movie by the British comedy group uh, Monty Python all right and once you've seen this movie you'll recognize certain behaviors of people in light of the one of the initial scenes in the movie it's about King Arthur it's called the life of Brian it's about King Arthur and he's traveling through a forest and he comes to a bridge how many of you know this scene yeah he comes to us he comes to a bridge and there are two knights fighting and black and a green knight and the black knight wins the battle and King Arthur compliments the the black knight and says you're a worthy knight I'd like to have you come and fight with me I'm I'm seeking the best knights in the whole kingdom come and fight with me come and be at my round table and the black knight once doesn't answer and Arthur says oh well you make me sad so be it and he starts to ride by towards the bridge black knight speaks for the none shall pass Arthur says what Black Knight says, I have no, he says, none shall pass. Arthur responds, I have no quarrel with you, good sir knight, but I, I must cross this bridge. Black Knight says, then you shall die. Arthur says, I command you, as king of the Britons, stand aside. The Black Knight says, for this you shall die. I move for no man. And so King Arthur says, well, so be it. He draws his sword. There's a short battle. Arthur doesn't have the heavy armor on. Black Knight's encumbered by his armor. And so Arthur comes up to him and hits him right at the shoulder of his left arm. And the, the shoulder falls off. And Arthur says, now stand aside, worthy adversary. The Black Knight says, tis but a scratch. Arthur says, a scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. Well, what's that then? Arthur says, pointing to the arm that's lying on the ground. I've had worse. Arthur says, you liar. Black Knight says, come on, you pansy. So there's another even shorter little skirmish at the end of which Arthur very easily cuts off the Black Knight's right arm. And with blood spattering freely around, the Black Knight's arm, both arms, the one holding the sword and the left arm lying on the ground, Arthur kneels and says, victory is mine, and he prays thanksgiving. But he hasn't counted on the Black Knight. He's not out of the fight yet. Black Knight comes up to him, and with his leg, he kicks him over. And says, come on, then, come on. And he kicks Arthur again. Arthur says, what? The Black Knight says, kicking him a third time, have at you. Arthur, getting up, says, you are indeed brave, Sir Knight, but the fight is mine. Oh, you've had enough then, the Black Knight says. Look, you stupid blank, Arthur says. You've got no arms left. Yes, I have. Look, look, Arthur, Arthur says. Just a flesh wound, says the Black Knight, and he kicks Arthur again. Arthur says, look, stop that. Black Knight says, chicken, chicken. Arthur says, look, I'll take your leg. The Black Knight continues kicking him. 
So Arthur says, right. He hops up and he chops off the Black Knight's leg with his sword. The Black Knight hopping on one leg says, I'll do you for that. I'll do you for that. Arthur says, you'll what? Black Knight says, come here. Arthur getting tired. What are you going to do, bleed on me? Black Knight says, I'm invincible. Arthur says, you're a loony. Black Knight says, the Black Knight always triumphs. Have at you. Hopping around, trying to kick Arthur with the one remaining leg. Arthur shrugs with a mighty swing. He takes off the last leg of the Black Knight. The Black Knight falls to the ground. He looks about, realizing he can't move. Arthur says, okay, we'll call it a draw. The Black Knight, as Arthur rides away on his horse, calls out him, oh, had enough, eh? Come back and take what's coming to you, you yellow coward. Come back here. Take what you've got coming to you. I'll bite your legs off. And that's the end of the scene. Now, (laughs) we're in a portion of the Gospels where Jesus is in the midst of intense conflict with his religious foes. And Jesus is in a very kind way, as Arthur is kind here and not wanting to, to, to crow over his foes, but he's wiping the floor with them. He's just wiping the floor with these, these Pharisees that he's pronouncing his woes on. It is the last week of Christ's life. Tuesday is the day that we're looking at now. Sunday was the triumphal entry. Monday, Jesus went into Jerusalem from his, his dwelling place, the place where he was spending the night in Bethany. Along the way into the city on, Tuesday, on Monday, he curses the barren, the, the barren fig tree and says, no fruit, and curses it. He enters Jerusalem. There in Jerusalem, he finds the money changers in the temple and he casts them out and then he returns to Bethany. That's Monday, Sunday triumphal entry, Monday cleansing of the temple, the cursing of the fig tree, Tuesday, the day we're on. On the way back into Jerusalem in the morning, disciples look and they marvel. They say, the fig tree that you cursed is dead. And Jesus says to them, you have faith you can tell this mountain to be buried in the heart of the sea and it will happen and on Tuesday once they arrive in Jerusalem there are a series of extraordinarily sharp and pointed encounters between Jesus and the religious authorities they are inaugurated kicked off by the chief priests and the elders of the people who come to Jesus as he's in the temple and say to him by what authority are you doing these things you're doing they're offended by everything he's done the triumphal entry the cleansing of the temple his showing up again and and feeling like he has the right to teach in their house which they view as their place of authority so they say by what authority do you do these things Jesus says back to them tell you what you tell me the answer to my question and I'll answer yours I'll tell you what authority The baptism of John, where was it from? Was it of man or was it of heaven? In other words, John's authority. Was it of God in baptizing and calling people to repentance or was it simply he himself? And the elders and the chief priests of the people 
they confer and they say, well, we can't answer this question because if we say it was of God, then the question will be, why didn't you get baptized? Why didn't you listen? Why did you reject him? But if we say it's of man, then we're afraid of the people because they hold John to have been a great prophet of God. So they say, we won't tell you. And Jesus responds, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's a triumph. The, you know, the arm is off. Following this encounter, this initial encounter, Jesus teaches three parables. The first of the, is of the two, par, the two brothers who are asked to, to work in the field by their father. The one says yes, but doesn't go and work. The other says no, dad, but then actually goes and works in the field. And in explaining the parable, Jesus warns the religious leaders that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God while they, they are refusing to do the will of God by repenting, as John had called them to do. He says, look, people all around you who have led sinful lives are entering and you're standing outside because you will not repent. Second parable is of the tenants in a vineyard who refuse to pay their rent. And they abuse a variety of messengers sent by the owner of the vineyard, sent to collect the rent, to collect the, the portion of the crop that belongs to him. Finally, the landlord, the owner, sends his son, a final messenger, his own son, and the tenants gather together and say, ah, this is the heir, let's kill him, and then it will be ours. And it's, it's such a pointed message. These people are planning to kill Jesus. And they know what Jesus is saying. Third parable, he tells, is of a king who invited guests to a wedding of his son. The invited guests say, oh, I've got this to do. Oh, I've got that to do. Ah, oh, please excuse me. I have a new horse. I have a new bride. I have, I have reasons I can't attend. And so the king sends his army to destroy the invited guests. And then he sends his servants out into the streets of the city and says, call them in, bring them in. Now all three parables are, are slices of appendages, cutting off the arms and legs of the religious establishment. And these parables lead to an intensified and widened conflict with the Pharisees immediately trying to trap Jesus with a question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus easily repels their feint, their attack. And then the Sadducees come and they try, and it's another religious group, another leading religious group in Jerusalem like the Pharisees, like the chief priests and the elders. And they have a question about the resurrection and they pose their question. You know, there was a, a woman who was married to a man and he died and she married his brother and he died and she married the next brother, which was the custom in Israel. And he died and she went through seven brothers in the, if there's really a resurrection, Jesus, whose wife will this woman be in the resurrection? Jesus says to them, you, you err not knowing the scriptures of the power of God. He just says, you guys are, you're ignorant. You don't know God, you don't know the Bible. And he says to them, God, he, he just proves the resurrection from Moses, from the burning bush. And, and so, it becomes the turn of the Pharisees again. The Sadducees are conquered. 
the, the Pharisees have another go at it with Jesus. They come back and one of them asks Jesus, what was the greatest commandment? The, Jesus answered that final test. And having answered it, he then asked them a question. And the question he asked is, whose son is the Christ, the Messiah of Israel? Now, the Bible teaches that the Messiah will be a son of David. But Jesus says, but remember that Jesus calls him his Lord, his God. So whose son is the Christ? The son of David? The son of God? And this is the coup de grace. This is the fourth appendage going off because they're going to kill him for claiming to be the son of God. That's the charge that they bring against him. Blasphemy. That he, though being a man, claimed to be the son of God. And Jesus is saying, the Messiah is the son of David. But David calls him his Lord. And it is... It is just a, a final and telling blow against the Pharisees. They can't answer him, and so Jesus then addresses eight woes to the Pharisees, eight great criticisms of the religious leaders. Those woes are not solely on the Pharisees. They include the entire religious establishment that's ranged in opposition to him, all the leaders, the scribes, the Sadducees, the priests, in addition to the Pharisees. And as we see this morning, as we turn to the end of this day and the end of these events in Jerusalem, Jesus broadens his woes. And by the end, his indictment includes all of Jerusalem. Not just the leaders, but everyone and the entire Jewish nation. And then Jesus leaves the city of Jerusalem and the temple and he goes back to Bethany where he delivers what is probably the final large-scale public sermon of his life in an address that's known as the Olivet Discourse because it takes place on Mount Olive. Next week we're going to begin looking at that final sermon. But today, we introduce these events of the, of the Olivet Discourse and the teaching there with the final woe that Jesus pronounces on the Pharisees. A woe that broadens from the initial application to, to the Pharisees to becoming a woe on all of Jerusalem and all of Israel and finally becoming because Zion, the city of God, where Jesus says, why did you reject your hope? Why did you turn from the one who wanted to gather you? Is a statement about all mankind. A statement about you and me. Why do you not listen to God? Why do you think you can win against God? Why do you not recognize that you're defeated that you're down to just a bloody trunk and a mouth with no power left. Why don't you understand it? Why do you continue as Jesus said to Paul as he was calling, why do you kick against the goats? The sharp thorns that the driver of the cart would use to get the ox to go. Why do you kick against it? I'm in charge. 
So we're in the midst of a passage that is a segue in Christ's teaching and in Matthew's account of this day. They both transition here. Jesus turns to the Olivet Discourse. Matthew transitions from the teaching in the temple to the teaching on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus, in his final woe, says to the to the leaders of the Jews, woe, woe on you, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? These are lonely men here. Jesus is speaking to a defeated group. They, they are defeated in fact. They don't recognize it in theory. They, in their minds they rebel against it, but they're defeated. They're they're looking to reclaim a glory that's not coming back. Jesus is warning them, look, it's not coming. He goes to the Olivet Discourse, he goes to the top of the Mount of Olives, and he starts talking about the future of Jerusalem, and it's going to end. The whole system these men are living to prop up and to keep alive and to maintain is done. The Messiah has come, but they won't recognize him. And so they're they're like men on a, on a scaffold where the trapdoor has fallen and they're running still and they're hanging on and they don't recognize they're dead. That's what's going on with these men. They're at the end of centuries of silence from God, centuries of shame for the Jewish nation, shame that includes no longer having a Jewish king but an Idumean, an Edomite king, Rome, having conquered them and having made them just a vassal state. These leaders are trying to appease Rome on the one hand and the religious zealots on the other, and they're just working as hard as they can to keep the system going, which, of course, just happens to be the system that puts their, their bread on their table, their shekels in their wallet, all right? They're not altruistic in this. They're saying, God, God. But the reality is it's me, my wallet, my, my reputation, my pride. And so Jesus says to them, hey, guys, you don't have standing with God just because you refuse to admit the truth about yourself. This is true in all of our lives. You may not want to admit the truth about who you are to God or to other people. You may want to say, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty fine fellow. I'm a pretty good looking woman. I'm righteous. I have my act together. And to act and convince others that you are that you are the cat's meow, that you really are the person you appear on Instagram, that you really are as cool as you present yourself, that you have it together, right? 
None of us wants to be looked at and to be understood as just a farce. Jesus is saying to the whole religious establishment and to you and me, you're a farce. Outside me, you are an absolute farce and fake. You have nothing. Nothing. These men are going, no, no, we have something. Look, we're building the temples of the prophets. We're building the tombs. We're adorning the monuments. We understand what's right. (laughs) And of course, this is exactly how we respond when God comes to us and says, you're a fake. We say, no, no, I'm not a fake. I'm not a fake. I understand the people who are the fakes, and they were in the past. I'm not like them. We virtue signal, right? We go out and we build the, the tombs of the prophets. And we say, oh, I'm not a bad guy. I know who the bad guys are. They're there, or they're there, or they're there, but they're not right here. I, a few years ago, started riding my bike down River Road towards Grand Rapids. I haven't done it for a while, but um, I do drive it. And uh, it was the lead up to the election a few years ago that I started noticing four houses in a row. Three of them had uh, Biden and Black Lives Matter um, posters in their yard. The one at the end had a big uh, Trump Pence sign. And I thought, okay, you know, a little neighborhood war going on here, but once the election's over, those signs are going to disappear. Oh, no, no, no. Those signs are there. They've become bigger, you know? And uh, I, I think to myself, isn't this crazy? You know, whatever you want to say about it, these people moved out to where they can have five-acre yards with, with, and never see a neighbor, you know? And, and uh, way out, you know, I, I think there's, there's along the, the, the river, the, uh, the Maumee River between here and Fort Wayne, I think there's three black people who live on it probably. Maybe just one, I don't know. I've never seen one, all right? But they're saying we're with the black people, you know? And I go, well, then why aren't you with them, man? Why are you running from everyone? But of course, the Biden guy, I mean, the, uh, the Trump guy, you know, he's saying, I'm righteous. I'm for President Trump. And it's every bit as much a virtue signal and nothing as the other. They're living vicariously. Their righteousness is not in them. It's my sign. It's my symbol. And it is the righteousness of symbolism rather than of the heart. You think you can be righteous because you voted for so-and-so. You think you're righteous. You think you're cool because your car has a Patagonia sticker on it and it's a Subaru or maybe even a Tesla. Virtue signals, not virtue. It is not righteousness to build the tombs of the prophets. Yeah, it's like saying I'm righteous because... I went out and I tore down a couple of the statues of Confederate generals, you know? Or saying today, I don't have to worry about being charged of racism because my family fought in the North in the Civil War. Therefore, I can't be a racist. Now, does that follow? 
Does it follow that because my ancestors, actually I did have a great-grandfather who lost his arm in the Battle of Gettysburg fighting for the North. Does that mean I'm not a racist? You know it doesn't. You know that these things are existing in all of our hearts. We're all racist, we're all proud, we're all evil in our hearts. But these guys, they say, I'm building the monuments. I'm restoring the temples. I'm not like my father. And Jesus says, you're just like your father. And you go, you're going you're to inherit the wrath of God that was due your fathers. And you go, whoa, Jesus, that's a hard thing. What on earth are you saying to these guys? I mean, they're building the temples and, and, or the tombs. And by building the tombs, they're, aren't they renouncing the deeds of their fathers? Aren't they saying, no, we're not? You know, we don't, we don't want to be included with them? And Jesus knows. Jesus knows that these men are going to kill him. And so he says to them, yeah, you're out there building the tombs. You have your Patagonia sticker on your car, don't you? Patagonia, Subaru, you know, Biden, Black Lives Matter, Trump. It's the same thing. It's from opposite sides, but no difference. Your virtue, but your heart is evil. You're proud. You look down on people. You don't want to share what you have. You don't care for others. You really want the chief seat at the, at the weddings. You want to be the big dude. You want to be envied. You want to be the cool one. And Jesus says, yeah, on you is going to come all the wrath of God. Now you understand that virtue signaling coming to a good church, homeschooling your kids, all the things you point to as your points of virtue mean nothing in the absence of repentance before God. One of the saddest moments in my life as a pastor was talking to a man who was losing his family and everything he held dear because he would not leave his sin behind. And he looked at me and he said, why is it going so well? And he named a couple other men in the church. And he said, I read the Bible with my children. I've done the things they've done. But his virtue is in his actions, but not in his heart. Sin is in his heart, and he wouldn't leave it. You understand that you have no virtue before God. I hope you do. That there is nothing in you that God looks at and says, oh, I love that, unless it's his son. God speaks through the prophet Zechariah, and he says, in the last days I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is the last days. It's not the, the days of Christ. It's in the last days. In the last days, God will pour out a spirit of 
grace and supplication so that those on whom his spirit descends will look on Jesus Christ, who God describes as me. He says me, whom they have pierced, whom they have put on the cross, and we will weep for him. Because we will understand that it was our sins that put him there, our sins that pierced him, our sins that made him suffer, and we will say, forget my virtue, forget it. I need the virtue of Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on and he says to these men, you know what? He says, the the proof that you are no different than your fathers is in the treatment you've accorded the messengers that God has sent you. Jesus says, On account of this, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. If we're not virtue signaling, we're doing the other thing that Jesus accuses the Pharisees. Killing the messenger. Killing the messenger. People run. People run. God sends someone to you and you don't like what that person says and you try and kill him. Metaphorically, probably not actually. These guys are actually going to kill Jesus. They killed John the Baptist. Metaphorically, You try and kill the person. You don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear criticism. You just don't want to hear it. Your attitude is the same as that of Joe Stalin, who is reputed to have said, and I don't know if he actually said it, but it's so strongly reputed to be a saying of his that I think it's probably true. It's what he acted on. Stalin said when there's a person, there's a problem. When there's no person, there's no problem. In other words, if I kill the person, I remove the problem. And so people come to us and they say things to us and we go, you know, I don't like that. I don't have that view of myself. I don't think I could be criticized in that area. And we move on. We move on. We go to another church. We say, "Ah, I don't need to hear this kind of crud. And we move on. And we do it all the time. Or we attack the person. We speak ill of them because they spoke ill of us. When there's a person, there's a problem. When there's no person, there's no problem. We move, we leave. And so I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, even if the criticism is totally wrong, there's blessing in it. There's really two types of criticism that come against us. There is the false criticism and the true. And you say, yeah, well, I'll take the true criticism, but I don't really appreciate the false criticism. I don't like being told things that are not true. I don't like being criticized for things I haven't done. Jesus says to us, hey, take the criticism. Even if it's not dead on, it's dead on. Even if the accusation is of something that never entered your mind, You need to be humbled. 
you need to be taken down. It's vital for your spiritual life that you come to accept criticism, both that's valid and helpful, and the criticism that isn't valid but is still helpful because it humbles you and makes you aware that you are not perfect. So Jesus ends with these, these words that are, should be etched in our minds, across our eyes, in our hearts. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you did not want it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I wanted to bring you to me. But you were proud. And you said, I don't need it. And I wanted to gather you to me. And I wanted to bestow all my richest blessings on you. And you said, no, don't need it. Just a flesh wound. I'm fine here. And Jesus says, I want to bring you to me. Jesus wants you to come to him. Jesus invites you to come under his wings and find refuge. Jesus says, I've longed to gather you. My great desire is to show my power and my care for you. But you would not have it. Because you kept saying, ah, it's just a flesh wound, I'm fine, Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will stop describing our sin as flesh wounds. May we understand that these wounds are deadly and drive to the heart. Help us not to be proud. May we accept what the prophets and teachers, the scribes who you send say to us. May we listen, Father, and not rebel. Deliver us from our pride. In Jesus' name, amen.